Section 10 of The Court and Character of King James, whereunto is now added The Court of King Charles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Court of King Charles, Part 1 Now having brought this peaceable king to rest in all peace, the 27th of March his son by the sound of the trumpet was proclaimed king by the name of Charles I. His father's reign began with a great plague, and we have seen what his reign was. His son's with a greater plague, and the greatest that ever was in these parts. We shall see what his reign will be, and the effects of this plague have also hung as a fatal comet over this kingdom, in some parts, and over London in more particular, ever since. And we earnestly pray we may not fall into the hands of men, but rather ever with that divinely inspired royal prophet David, that we fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. This king was not crowned with that solemnity all other kings have formerly been, by riding through the city in all state, although the same triumphs were provided for him as sumptuous as for any other. This some have taken as an ill omen. It's further reported, which I will not believe, that he took not the usual oath all our kings were bound unto at their coronation, and it's to be read in Covell's book. If so, sure it's a worse omen. One more observation is of this king, which I remember not to have happened in any other kingdom, I am confident never in this, that with him did also rise his father's favourite, and in much more glory and lustre than in his father's time, as if he were no less an inheritor of his son's favour than the son of the father's crown. And this, as it happened, was the worst omen of all. For whereas in the father's time there was some kind of moderation, by reason he was weary of the insolency of his favourite, in the son's time he reigned like an impetuous storm, bearing down all before him that stood in his way, and would not yield to him or comply with him. This showed no heroical or kingly spirit for the king ever to endure him that had put such scorns and insolent affronts on him, in his father's time. This king, as his father did set in peace, did rise like a Mars, as if he would say, Arma verumque cano, and to that end, to make himself more formidable to Spain and France, he called a parliament, wherein never subjects expressed more hearty affections to a sovereign, and in truth were more loving than wise, for, as if for an income to welcome him, they gave him two entire subsidies and in so doing they break the very foundation and privileges of Parliament, which never was wont to give subsidies, but as a thankful gratuity for enacting good laws. Therefore it is but God's justice to repay them with Italian laws, to have their privileges broken, seeing they first chalked out the way. The king, in requital of this great love of theirs, did instantly dissolve the Parliament which hath bred such ill blood in the veins of the subjects to their sovereign, and in the sovereign to the subject, that it is like to produce an epidemical infection. But the occasion taken to dissolve it was worst of all. For Buckingham, by his insolent behaviour, had not only lost that love his hatred to Spain had procured him, but was now grown into such an hatred that they fell on him for the death of his old master which had been of a long time before but whispered. But now the examinations bred such confessions that it looked with an ugly, deformed, poisonous countenance, 
and nothing but the dissolution of that Parliament could have saved his dissolution, and that with a brand of shame and infamy, as well as of ingratitude. I remember I heard a noble gentleman, an old Parliament man of that Committee for Examinations, say at first he derided the very thought of it, but after the first day's examination it proved so foul as that he both hated and scorned the name and memory of Buckingham. And though man would not punish it, God would, which proved an unhappy prediction. This dissolving the Parliament was ill relished by the people, and that which to them did seem the cause worse, and to make the case yet fouler, and that it must needs be the evident cause. Buckingham's counsels were so stupid and himself so insolent that he did think it a glory to disgrace all those that followed that business in that Parliament, or that seemed inquisitive thereafter, and caused many old servants of the kings he formerly favoured very much to be banished from court, never to return more, nor did they ever, as Clare, Crofts, Sir Francis Stuart, etc. Nay, Dr. Cragg, his physician, who from his very childhood had the general repute of a very honest man, for expressing himself like an honest man in the king's presence, was instantly dismissed, never could recover his place or favour more. Now also is Williams, Lord Keeper, turned out of his place, and Coventry, the king's attorney, put in, who, had Buckingham lived, had as soon followed in the same steps. Then goes Buckingham into France, on a stately embassy for that lady the king had seen, and set an affection on in his passage to Spain which was obtained with small entreaty. Now doth Buckingham soar so high both in his master's favours and in the pride of his own heart, as he alters all great officers, makes war against Spain and France, the quarrel only his, voiced to be on strange grounds, the success accordingly. Navies, armies, and nothing but war appears, as if we intended in show to conquer all that opposed. Lord Wimbledon the general, from whom as little could be expected as he performed, carrying a powerful army to Calais, after an infinite expense and drinking much Spanish wines, and beating out the heads of what they could not drink, as if they intended to overthrow that year's trade of Spanish wine, returned as like a valiant commander as he ever was reputed. Whereas had he brought home those wasted wines, it may be they would have defrayed the charge of that expedition. After the return of that wise pageantism, Denby is sent into France to aid Rochelle, who managed it better than his great kinsman Buckingham, who would afterwards needs go to do great exploits, for he brought his ships and men safe again, the other left his men in powdering tubs, as if he meant to have them kept sweet against his next coming thither. In short, this unhappy voyage lost all the honour our glorious ancestors had ever gotten over that nation there being so many brave gentlemen wilfully lost, as if that voyage had been on purpose plotted to disable our nation by taking away so many gallant brave young spirits, so many of our colours lost as trophies of their victory and of our shame, hung up in Notre Dame church, that the brave Talbot and Salisbury, with many other our valiant ancestors, will rise up in judgment against him for that every way inglorious act. Nay, to how low an ebb of honour was this our poor despicable kingdom brought, that, even in Queen Elizabeth's time the glory of the world, a great nobleman being taken prisoner, was freely released with this farewell given with him, 
that they desired but two English mastiffs for his ransom. But the king, by that unnecessary and dishonourable war, was driven to that exigency for want of money that he was forced to pawn his rich cupboard of plate to Amsterdam, and to send Cottington into Spain in a manner to beg a peace, which, having obtained, it was thought so great a service of him that it raised him to all his honour and fortunes. Yet all the while Rochelle, in sharp distress, was left unrelieved, although otherwise intended, or but pretended rather. For the courting betwixt the duke and the governor of the Isle of Ré, in sending compliments and presents to each other, showed rather an intimate dearness than any hostility to be meant between them. And sure I am the success made it apparent that their purpose was no better than to carry so many goodly gentlemen to the slaughterhouse and powdering tub as even now I instance. Yet was the king so content to be abused, as publicly at his dinner he delivered it for a miracle, that having such ill success there were so few men lost, for that as many came home as went forth, as appeared by the checker roll, within five hundred. At which a gentleman, whose faithful valour prompted him to speak a truth in season, though theirs did not them to fight, standing at the back of the king's chair, said, Yea, sir, as you hear, but hear very little of truth. But if you please to inquire of such as can and dare inform you truly, you shall find many thousands fewer came home than went forth. For which relation this honest tell-truth was commanded presently from his court attendants, which doom he never could get reversed, wherein you may behold the power of Buckingham with the king, whose word stood for a law. Which power of his grew now so exorbitant he aspires to get higher titles, both in honour and place, as Prince of Tipperary, a place so called in Ireland, and Lord High Constable of England, an office aimed at by that monster and Machiavellian Leicester in Queen Elizabeth's time, that he therein was crossed and contradicted by the then Lord Chancellor Hatton, now affected by Buckingham, who herein wrote after Leicester's ambitious example, but he crossed too by precedent, with Coventry, now Lord Keeper, and no question but upon those just grounds his predecessor did. For you must understand, this office hath an authority annexed unto it, to call any subject in question for his life, by trying, condemning, and executing him, in despite of the king himself. Nay, some have made no bones on to affirm, that for misgovernment the king himself is not exempted from that officer's power. Politically, therefore, did the aforementioned Hatton, who well understood the validity of such a power, when Leicester's commission was in dispute, to tell the Queen that his own hand should never strike off his own head? Which word was enough to her who was hereat so wise, as also in all other matters of state concernment, wherein, as she were hinted to a foresight of any prejudice, she knew how to prevent it? And thus that ended in his time. But Buckingham's ambition would not be so bounded, for upon the opposing it by Coventry, he peremptorily thus accosted him, saying, Who made you, Coventry, Lord Keeper? He replied, The King. Buckingham, sir, replied, It's false, t'was I did make you, and you shall know that I who made you can and will unmake you. Coventry thus answered him, Did I conceive I held my place by your favour, I would presently unmake myself by rendering the seal to his majesty. 
Then Buckingham, in a scorn and fury, flung from him, saying, You shall not keep it long. And surely, had not Felton prevented him, he had made good his word. And before that happened, Weston was, by his power and for his ends, made treasurer. It should seem upon some assurance from him that he would find ways whereout to raise monies into the treasury. He judging him to be one that out of his own necessitous condition would adventure on any desperate projection to raise himself, but yet withal to fill the chequer coffers, who was no sooner warmed in his office, but he began to show his inbred base disposition to his razor, Buckingham, as formerly he had done to Cranfield, who was indeed his preserver from perishing in a prison, whence he redeemed him, making him a free partaker, first of his bounteous table, then raising him shortly after to be Chancellor of the Exchequer, who at length, for requital, supplanted him. But for all this Buckingham feared not. His high spirit in himself and vast power with the king were so predominant and unmovable. He now therefore used at his own pleasure to come to the council table, he being then honoured as the oracle from whom they gaped for all answers, but ever made them wait his coming, and were so tutored to their duteous observance of him, that at his approach or returning thence they ever must rise as if he had been the king himself, so that you may see to what a pretty pass those great men by their poor spirits had brought themselves. But on a time there issued this amongst other passages of insolences from Buckingham, who, coming into the council without any other court preface, says to the treasurer Weston, My lord, the king must have sixty thousand pounds provided against to-morrow morning. The lords startled at the mention of such a sum, the whole exchequer not having seen within its keeping scarce a thousand pounds in many years, and could not imagine how, unless by the philosopher's stone, such a sum was possible to be gotten. But yet all looking on Weston, to whom it was in this case proper to make answer, who bethought himself what to say, the rest every one the while gazing at each other, another while again all at Weston, as a man of great wisdom, for so was he accounted of a plebeian. At length up he stands, and thus he answers Buckingham, My lord, the exchequer is in the deep consumption. Whereat Buckingham interrupts him, saying, How, sir? You came in to cure that consumption, and to restore it to its useful plenitude. I remember you promised, like a mountebank, when you were to be invested by the king, you would do so. Therefore, sir, see you the money be provided, otherwise you shall hear further of it. With that high strain he rose up and departed. Now are always endeavoured to get money from the subjects, which was not to be gotten by fair means, the king having tried all the shifts which any former prince out of the parliamentary way had ever done, and had great sums brought in, such as none of his predecessors ever had, of which one was the royal subsidy, every man lending as much as the sum in the subsidy towards which he was assessed, as if, for example, assessed at forty pounds, besides so much paid, he lent also forty pounds, and so from the least to the greatest proportions assessed. Yet all this would not serve him, but that quickly vanished, then all other fair means proving, as was thought for their profuseness, too scant and slow, force then must be the last remedy. The king must keep standing garrisons to awe his good subjects, and they consisting too of strangers, not of natives. To that end one Dalbier, that had been general of Count Mansfield Horse, is dealt with for the raising of a thousand or two thousand German horse, 
the most whereof to be quartered betwixt Gravesend and London. For advancing of which service, Sir William Balfour, as great a servant and confident he is now of this Parliament, was sent to Hamborough with thirty thousand pounds to buy and bring over those horse with their impressed riders and furniture. But many of them ready to be embarked, it should seem they were told by the way, by some well affected to England, that the king had not money to continue them in pay, and plunder they could not there, for they should be so environed with sea that there was no flying. But they must expect to have all their throats cut if they took anything from any man. Upon which those rascals, out of fear, not conscience, refused to come over. However, Balfour so well licked his fingers in that employment, as that he therewith laid the foundation of his future fortunes. Yet if this Parliament consider well this action of his, there is no reason he should be so dear unto them. For of anything yet touched upon against any man by this Parliament, I dare affirm this of his to be the greatest piece of villainy, and to be the nearest way to render us all slaves, and to make us have neither propriety in our estates, wives, nor children. And yet was this Balfour a principal undertaker and actor in this pernicious design, and perhaps for that very cause the greatest creature of Buckingham's that ever was. In this interval, their shifts not availing them, to see therefore if by this fair means their ends might be obtained, another Parliament was summoned, wherein, after some expostulations on both sides, there proved no better a good speed and success than a mere frustration of all hopes on both hands which for the king's part he apprehended with so great averseness that, as t'was said, he made a vow never to call more parliaments. End of section 10